In a world full of podcasts, one drag queen and one spooky expert are going where no podcast has gone before. Sorry, you've only got three chins. You're not coming into the club. (laughs) Killers, Colts, and Queens, your new and refreshingly strange true crime podcast. Join Cheryl and Nikki on a whistle-stop tour of the spookiest, scariest, and downright weirdest corners of the world. You've not heard true crime until you've heard Killers, Colts, and Queens. I've been like Gemma Collins. I'm claustrophobic! (laughs) So get in, loser. We're getting weird. Well, depends how big it is. Find Killers, Colts, and Queens wherever you get your podcasts, and remember to hit follow so you never miss an episode. Huge shout out to my podcast brother, James English, for introducing me to Anna Breeze, and I've recently watched her podcast with James, and also a podcast with a guy called Mike, and Anna and Mike have worked together on a project, a book, and we're going to be getting to that Now, watching Anna's podcast, I was just blown away by her honesty coming out of the mainstream media, the old media, the dinosaur media, and the path she has set herself upon now. And in terms of Mike's, it was titled A Heartbreaking, but it absolutely ripped my heart out listening to this guy who was a victim of prolific child sex abuse. The book is called The Meat Rack Boy and links to all of Anna's socials and to the James English podcast are going to be in the description box below this video. So I urge people to click over, watch the original James interview, um, Anna and Mike, and keep momentum going on those videos. So for people watching this then, Anna, who aren't familiar with you and Mike, could you just... Tell us who you are first, please, and what's your background? Yeah, of course. Um, So I'm nearly 43 in a few days. Uh, I worked for the BBC and also for ITV for many, many years, from around 2001 to 2011, 12. I worked for ITV in Birmingham, BBC South today in Southampton. I worked in the Channel Islands at ITV. Um, I was a regional reporter, and then I went to do quite a bit of presenting. And then uh, took some time out and had kids, worked for the National Union of Journalists doing training. And I really started a new training business about three years ago where I was showing people how to use mobile phone to create professional content because we've all got mobile phones. Um, And there was a real huge demand for this, especially amongst sort of corporates, communication teams and marketing professionals. So it started off like that. Um, But then I was always... I'm... I'm, I felt that there was a voice that we weren't listening to. A lot of people used to call the newsroom when I was in television and we weren't covering their stories. I met somebody, which I talk about in the James English interview. Um, I started a relationship with someone who kind of introduced me to some some documentaries on YouTube, in particular 9-11. And at first I um, was in shock. Uh, I didn't know what to make of it. I would constantly try to find information to dispute what I was watching. And I suppose... That started a journey in 2016 that kind of changed my way of seeing the world and things that I believe to be the truth. Do you remember what 9-11 video that was? The um, architects and engineers for 9-11. So it was the um, professional individuals who said, we cannot understand how the building uh, seven fell down in the way it did. Um, You know, looking at very much the, the way that the 
the building came down basically and, and saying that it just wasn't possible and how there's you know not footage of particular areas like the the pentagon there was no um footage of the the plane coming down and, and lots of other different issues and it seemed to be presented in a very professional way and the evidence was presented in a very professional way and i found it very difficult to um to watch that's really interesting that we have both had a wake-up moment because of 9-11. I worked in the stock market and I was the options manager for my branch. So I had to sign off on all of the options tickets. So if you buy a shirt and it goes up 10%, an option might go up 100%. These are derivative securities. Now in the days before 9-11, the trading on the options of the airlines just went off the scale from yearly historic norm. Like a complete, it, it was so much that it made headline news. And when 9-11 happened, they said, this has to be inside a terrorist trading. We will track these trades back, the government will, and these people will be arrested. Then it completely disappeared out of the news. So years later, I'm in a maximum security jail in Arizona. Someone shoves a David Icke book under my door, 9-11 um, Alice in Wonderland. And Ike traced those trades to a brokerage that was run by ex-CIA. I researched it further when I, after my incarceration and everybody to do with those trades was interviewed by the feds and they deputized them, which means you can't say anything to anyone about them, otherwise you will go to prison. So there is no possible way that could have happened without those people knowing. And you're saying that you watch this video and you got this information from the experts, the architects, the insiders. I watched the firemen as well give their accounts. And how did that affect you mentally? Because it was really like this epiphany was troublesome, thinking that, all right, the people in power, how can this be possible? The media's not telling us this. How can this be possible? This was like the tidal wave of thoughts I was having at the time. I, I I agree with you. I think um, it just opened up my eyes to a different truth. And uh, it was a story that I um, did, did as much as I can to look into. And yeah, I just thought, well, I've just got lots of questions here. I wasn't particularly finding the answers. But uh, they talked, you know, back, it, it's changed, hasn't it? This was back in 2016. It was all about conspiracy theories. There was a lot more on YouTube. Um, but the person that I was seeing, I mean, he he was going down a particular rabbit hole and believing everything all sorts of conspiracy theories. And then it was in a time when YouTube channels, you know, you could kind of say anything and do anything. And there were a lot of people talking about crisis actors and um, <clears throat> thinking every single terrorist event involved crisis actors and was there was an agenda behind every terrorist event. And that's a particular side of new media or YouTube that I think is concerning because there are a lot of very cynical people out there and a, and a lot of cynical content and you, you know, vulnerable people that can believe anything and, they look to influencers and they look to channels to give them direction, to give them kind of a truth. And sometimes there's, there's bad journalism in, on the YouTube side of things as well, um, where people things haven't been researched properly. You're not getting a right of reply, so getting kind of a balanced argument. And it's very easy to just start sharing information uh, and other sources without you know, fully checking it out. But it's very difficult to, isn't it? This is the kind of era that we live in, unless you've seen it with your own eyes. Which is why I always say... It's very difficult for me to talk about things like 9-11 or Epstein or Syria because it's not a situation that I'm, you know, it, 
I'm not around it, the witnesses involved, I haven't spoken to them, I haven't met them. Um, and we are in a situation now where we we don't know who to trust. You know, it's very, very difficult to know what sources to trust. But the whole um, kind of Westminster paedophile ring, the cover-ups there, is something that I do know a little bit more about. And obviously having spoken to Michael and having met Michael um, and other individuals, and there's a guy called James Reeves, who's very similar to Michael, was brought up in care, sexually abused. And um, I know a little bit about Chief Constable Mike Veal, who headed up uh, Operation Conifer looking into Edward Heath. And Mark Watson, the journalist involved, these are people I've met. So I feel more comfortable talking about this particular story um, than I do maybe talking about 9-11 or events that are going on all around the globe. Well, what you said there ties into exactly what we're talking about. So as a journalist, we have to decide where to draw the line because, yeah, there are people out there exposing what really went on with 9-11, but there are also people exaggerating and just taking it to the mental illness level. And there's a whole host of those people putting this content out. And then the detractors of the people telling the truth point at the nut jobs and say, look, these guys are all on the same bus to the loony farm. You know, none of this is true whatsoever. Now, the parallel here with the child sex abuse stuff is Carl Beach, was it Beach's last name? Yeah, Carl Beach. Carl Beach. So we had the allegations against Heath and other people. And I've watched some of his interviews. And to me, um, he just strikes me as a low IQ person with some perhaps mental deficiencies who was um, maybe coaxed into saying certain things. Who's it, Carl Beach? Carl Beach. Look, just look at the interviews. I'm not, you know, I've not researched this extensively, but just look at the interviews. That was, that was my gut to think that this guy... Um, he didn't strike me as a high intelligence person. He just struck me as someone perhaps who had mental health issues. Um, from your own research, you've done far more than me on this subject. What, what's your analysis of the Carl Beach situation? Well, um, it's, it's it's quite complicated one. I mean, it all started with Tom Watson, the MP, raising a question in Parliament about there being kind of high profile paedophiles that are being covered up. Um, and it goes it goes quite far back to when Jeffrey Dickens handed a dossier that went missing to Leon Britton. So the Carl Beach story, I mean, that all came out sort of two or three years ago. And uh, he was deemed a credible witness. And he was working with, you know, he was being interviewed by journalists, former mainstream media journalists who worked for a publication called Exaro. And they deemed him to be credible. And so did Tom Watson. Um, uh, it turned out, you know, he... He gave his story about being sexually abused by VIPs. And then um, you know, this went on for two years and cost millions of pounds. Uh, so why did it... So, and then, then he was taken to court and found to be a liar and a fraudster and also a paedophile. Um, and he got eight years. Well, why didn't this come out sooner? Um, and it's, it was all over the papers, you know, when he did get locked up. It was everywhere. But what wasn't everywhere was the testimonies of senior police officers on oath back in March this year talking about cover-up and how they were asked to ignore um, photographs of politicians and um, famous people in compromising positions with young boys. Their testimonies on oath are on like, um, YouTube. The Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse 
live streamed all of them from March. And that wasn't all over the media, but what happened with Carl Beach was, and what really frustrated me in the summer were there were all these articles coming out. So when Carl Beach was finally kind of um, arrested and, and charged and, and put away for eight years, all of the newspapers and all the commentary was around how the fact that this Westminster paedophile ring was all fiction, apparently. It's all fiction, just because of this one particular situation with Carl Beach. And it just feels like they're insulting our intelligence. The media, have, and it... I think they could have steered this a different way a couple of years ago, but I, I, they are starting to insult our intelligence now, and I call them the old media. They're not um, realising that we're going out and doing our own research. We are looking at other sources, and they are you know, constantly peddling this particular line, um, such as Westminster paedophile rings are f- fictitious. Um, but all the evidence, there's there's evidence, you know, what Michael Michael Tarragher talks about, an incident with Edward Heath, Um Mike Veal led an investigation which looked at like, the 40 people came forward to allege sexual abuse by the former Prime Minister Edward Heath. And seven of those, six or seven of those, would have led to him being brought in for questioning. You know, they, they deemed it to be credible enough. Um, and really, in the last few days, I've heard of um, other politicians uh, right now in very recent history who... Um, who have <clears throat> at this stage, you know, I'm I'm doing further research, but it looks like it's still a problem today, and I'm unaware of a particular politician that it's been alleged has been involved in having sex with uh, boys under the age of consent, um, and that's something I'm investigating at the moment, and I can't tell you how upset and angry I am and sick to to the very pit of my stomach that this is still going on and it. It looks like it has still been going on in the last 10 years. Well, one thing about the Epstein arrest was it's shown the world as an epidemic of this. It's never stopped. It's everywhere. And just want to go back to one of your points from earlier. So some researchers have suggested that the Carl Beach story being headline news right now is straight out of Lord McAlpine's book, whereby he wrote that if you have a bunch of people make allegations against you, produce a false witness, blow that person up as being truthful, then expose that it was all lies and everybody will be completely discredited. And those headlines blew up just at the time we had all of these headlines building against Prince Andrew. He'd hired the new PR person and he was putting out these desperate releases saying that, for example, I flew out to visit Epstein to break up our friendship with him. Flew five, flew a thousand miles where it was to break up our friendship. The, the Prince Andrew of the UK would go all that way to New York. That's preposterous. And then having people put out these things saying that um, the photos of him are all fakes. It's, you know, and I don't know if you saw the 60 Minutes Australia documentary that came out in the last week. But Virginia Roberts, she just blasted Andrew for these new responses and said, look, he needs to get real and stop using these lame-ass excuses and he needs to be at least subpoenaed as a witness in this case or face justice for what he's, you know, she is claiming that, that he's actually done. So going back to Heath, and do you think that the beach situation was allowed to go forward like that 
to set back the sympathy for victims, like it said in McAlpine's book, The Strategy. Well, they call it a misinformation campaign, don't they, where they uh, mislead the public and we all are led to believe that there's nothing to see here, that they're that it is uh, completely fictitious. I do think that it's very bizarre that they picked on this particular individual, um, put him on a pedestal, made out that uh, you know his his information was credible, and then all of a sudden destroy him, completely destroy him as a witness, as a credible witness. And it also sends out a message to other people who may have been the victims of you know, VIP pedophiles that that could happen to them. Are you aware that the cop who allowed the investigation into Beach to go forward was the same cop who shut down the Epstein investigation in this country? I didn't know that. Yeah, that's been reported recently. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. All right, so people watching this program then are very curious about Mike. Can you just tell us how you came to meet Mike and what the initial... Um, you know, encounter was? I met Michael Tarragut through Facebook. Um, and I have to be honest with you, I have a lot of people who are victims of sexual abuse contact me. Um, I was working with John Wedger and you've interviewed John, haven't you? Yeah, and if you want to watch the interview I've done with John Wedger, he's the ex-cop out of London who exposed how he was told to cover up and stop investigating paedophile rings when it linked back to elites and VIPs and celebrities and politicians. Link will be in the description box below this video. So John Wedger um, was somebody that I kind of wanted to help get that message out on social media. So I interviewed John and then we kind of started interviewing people all around the country and um, running a Facebook page. And I was boosting a lot of these posters. It was doing very well. I mean, we were getting kind of a million, a million hits a month and um, lots and lots of views. And then people were um, coming forward and saying, well, I want to get my story out. Michael contacted us through that page. So this is the great thing about Facebook and Twitter is the, the way you can connect with people all around the world and start to put the pieces of the jigsaw together. You know, somebody pup comes forward and said they were a victim of Edward Heath and somebody else comes forward and you speak to them and you look at the evidence. So John went to interview Michael Tarragut in January. So it was less than a year ago, January 2019. And I listened to his story and it was just done on a mobile phone. It was a Facebook Live and... Um, Michael's partner, Georgie, was coming in with cups of tea and they were having a fag. And it was a kind of journalism that I want to see more and more of, you know, just using a mobile phone, ch having a chat. So my, uh, John was going all over the country speaking to professionals, but also victims of abuse. And Michael was one of them. So Michael, this is, this is the, the reason I got involved. He was given £10,000 in compensation from Lambeth Council. It was called a harm's way payment for the abuse he suffered as a child. Now, with that £10,000... He spent £4,000 on publishing a book about his life story. It was called The Uncouth Lout. Now, he then gave that book away and donated some money, asked for donations and gave the money to charity. He had no interest in making money. He just wanted to get his story out. And I thought, I'm a journalist. How outrageous is this, that this man, this poor man, who was sexually raped, anally raped as a child from the age of four, almost every day, now gets £10,000 in compensation in his late 60s and he spends nearly half of that on trying to get his story out. What am I doing as a journalist? What are my colleagues, professional journalists, doing by not covering these stories? And I felt um, this huge, huge rage, righteous anger. I thought, I have to do something. We have to get his story out. So I went up, did an interview with him, took the book, 
Um, it was written, a, a, he'd paid a ghostwriter, a guy with Alex Price to help uh, write it. And we um, added a few more chapters. I talked to him about Edward Heath. I said, look, people are going to be interested to, to find out a little bit more about Edward Heath. And I'm a journalist and I know how you um, have to sometimes put in extra parts to a story to get it to sell, to write a headline. Um, and we published that independently on Amazon. And now at the end of, coming towards the end of the year, we've made about £4,000, four to £5,000. And every single penny has been spent on helping other people get their story out. People like Michael, but also whistleblowers, victims and survivors of abuse. There's a lady called Jan Cruikshank who benefited from some training. So I spent two days. The, the, the money from the book, Meet Rat Boy, so if anyone buys the book, every single penny goes on these two-day training courses where food, accommodation, training are all, is all paid for because a lot of people can't afford this. And I show them how they can do what you're doing now, but with a mobile phone and get that story out to the masses. There are so many people like Michael and I can't help them all and I wish I could. So please support by clicking down into the description box. This book, Meet Right Boy, is available worldwide on Amazon as a paperback and an ebook. It's not an audio book yet, is it? No, we need to sort that out. We can, yeah. we can discuss that after this. Um, please click down and... If you're in America, if you're in the UK, you should be able to buy that pretty easily. And watching Mike's video, you know, he's saying, I'm not making a penny from this. I want it all to go to this cause that I'm on. So one of the most heartbreaking points of the James English video was Mike, he said that there's an eight millimeter film of him out there where he's like a toddler and his sister is like one. And they were, pedophiles made them interact sexually and filmed it. And he had no idea what was what was happening. Um, I was just listening to it on the way here, and, and it was absolutely just just it's just so devastating. What it's, what he what he what what are we what are we doing, Sean, as a human race, to allow this to happen to our children? You know, and it's not a situation I don't think that's gone away. And you know, like I said, in recent time. In recent years, you look at what John Wedger said about how he was he was told to, to keep quiet and was threatened, trying to expose child abuse. And if those at the very top are getting away with it, what is that saying to everyone else? But we're not looking after our children. And the vulnerable children, the children that have got no one, they are easy targets, aren't they? There's no one standing up for them, children that have gone into care. And if you if you if we sort out our children, I believe all of society's ills are sorted out. You know, issues around drugs and around crime, um, family breakdown. Our children need to be loved. They need unconditional love and secure and safe environments. Um, and to see what happened to Michael just broke my heart. Um, and his story is, is truly truly horrific. But I, you know what? I, I have to say this: he's he's just had a stroke and he's in hospital. But he said to me, he can now die in peace. He can die in peace, knowing that the story's got out. It and was, I tell it, you what... It I, was nice to see him smiling at the end of that podcast and him saying that he's never been happier in his life because he's got his work out there, he's shared his story, and he's getting messages from all over the world right now supporting him. I just wish we could do this for other people. We could do this for everyone. You know, there are so many people like Michael that contact me and uh, I just wish that they could all say that I can now die in peace. Now I know that my story's got out and people are aware and 
and hopefully there's a call to action in that as well that society changes and that we become aware of what's really going on um behind closed doors and all of these houses around around the country you know i think about you know children in care um but children aren't being looked after by by their own parents you know what what are we doing what are we doing to not look after our children so this is our 60 something podcast and it started out with me interviewing people who had prison experiences and i've noticed now it's become a common theme that there is some tragedy in their childhood a lot of them were in care and then they get on the drugs to deal with the pain and they get into heavier crime then financing the drug addict um, addiction and hanging out with people in that scene which ultimately leads to incarceration we had one guy on who he was raped by his friend's dad he went to the house and his friend wasn't home and his dad said come in and he raped him and then he when he got older he tried to he just stormed in that guy's house he, was, he wanted to kill him and i remember mike saying how he felt he went for a period whereby he wanted to kill these people that had done it to him he ended up getting arrested incarcerated gets out of prison goes straight back to the guy's house arrested incarcerated gets out of prison goes straight back to the guy's house this is just the cycle throughout his entire life so the damage that causes in childhood just continues on throughout you know the entire lives of these people it's it's so sad and there's nothing there really there's nobody helping them because they're in the care homes you know i think michael said that he he told the police when he was young that this was happening he ran away when he was six years old um he'd had a particularly difficult day with his foster parents and had got a beating and he ran down the street in his underwear and freezing cold to try and get to the police station he got picked up by a milkman who was very very kind and did 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 the best he could and took him to the local police station and um the foster parents just said he's been naughty and as you know he's run away they just didn't believe him they didn't believe the story he was telling. That reminded me of one of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims. I think he was in his underwear and the police, went, the police found him. They took him back to Dahmer's house. Yeah. So you said the original title of the book was The Something Loud. The Uncouth Loud, yeah. And it got changed to Meat Rack Boy. Could you just explain to people what that means, Meat Rack Boy? Well, I, Michael came up with the, the title. Um, I said, I asked him for a photograph of himself when he was younger because I could see that was going to be a very powerful image for the front of the book. And he didn't have one. He, there was no photograph. The only photograph he owned was one of his twin brother, which is what's on the front cover of Meat Bat Boy. But he said um, it was because he felt like a piece of meat. You know, the men that paid to have sex with him and the other young boys had actually called them a chicken. So you're either a fresh chicken or a cooked chicken. Um, and obviously a lot of men preferred the younger boy and wanted to, yeah, would pay more to be with someone of a fresh chicken. So, you know, it was called the meat rack and it happened in, um, in London in an arcade called Playland. And they used to line up. Anthony Daly talks about it as well. Anthony Daly's a chap that uh, I follow on Twitter. He's written a book and, uh, yeah, they'd line up the pimp would, you know, put the, the boys out. They'd come along and choose which one they wanted and they'd, they'd pay the pimp and off they'd go. And Edward Heath was one of those clients. He would have had somebody do it for him, I should imagine. I don't think Edward Heath would have gone out in public and picked up a boy from the meat rack. He'd have had someone deliver the boys to him. Some Savile-type character. Well, um, in Michael's book, he talks about the experience he had with Edward Heath, which wasn't uh, rape. Um, he, you know, People can buy the book and read about that, what happened with Heath. Um, but there were a lot of uh, very rich, wealthy, powerful men 
um, getting boys that way. And uh, most of them, in fact, well, all of them were in, in had run, run away from care and were living in very often um, train stations in London looking after each other. It was the only way they could survive. You know, I've heard that story over and over again from a number of people. You know, they were they were living rough, sleeping in the in the train stations in London, and that's how they were getting by. So there has been a detractor of Mike's story, and at the end of the interview, I think Mike says he would like to sit down with that woman and talk to her face to face. I think she was a journalist from Private Eye. Oh, I can talk about her at length. I'm very happy. Can to you please her. explain the beef that's happened between you guys and her and who she is? So. We were getting a lot of attention um, on Facebook. I think we were sort of getting hundreds of thousands of views. We were starting to sell a book and it was doing very, very well. Um, and I got an inquiry from a journalist called Rosie Waterhouse who was asking me some questions. He was trying to look into Michael's story. And from the outset, I could see that she, it was a hit job. She was trying everything she could to discredit Michael and to find some kind of hole in the story where his dates might have been wrong or all the paperwork which I've seen. So he was in the care of Lambeth Council. I've got all of the records. I was able to see when, what dates he was in this particular school where he alleges this incident happened with Edward Heath. As a journalist, you know, I'm a professional journalist having worked for the BBC and ITV. I know how to investigate a story and I was happy to run it. So Rosie Waterhouse tried everything she could. The first article she wrote was pretty um, forgettable, to be honest with you. You know, she just kind of was trying to infer that, uh, you know, maybe this wasn't quite true. But the second article she wrote was defamatory, um, without a shadow of a doubt, particularly on me. But she said that um, Michael had written that he wasn't in this particular care home when he said he was. She'd found an email, she said. She'd claimed to have found his email. She kept going on and on about this email. That was the only piece of evidence she had to, to try and discredit him, this one email well, it actually wasn't an email. You know, that was a lie. That was her first lie. It was actually a comment that he'd made on the forum where he just got his dates wrong, very small, small thing. She also challenged him and, and saying that no, he wasn't actually three. He was four when he went into the foster home. So she was saying he got his, the date wrong. He was actually four and not three. Who would remember at that age? Um, but she, she read every single word of my book. She'd read every tweet that I'd ever written. It must have taken her two or three weeks full time to write one article in the Private Eye magazine about me. Now, I know how it works as a freelance journalist. You earn about £300 an article. So you're telling me she spent two or three weeks investigating me and Michael and as much as she could just to write this one article. So um, I made a complaint to Private Eye. I also produced a report, which you can see on YouTube. It's only on John Wedge's channel at the minute, actually. And it's fascinating. And I've basically exposed this journalist, Rosie Waterhouse. So she actually taught an MA in investigative journalism at London City, London City University. Um, and she was on Newsnight programme in the 90s. But if you look at her work, this is what's quite sinister. And there's another journalist as well who I'm, I'm aware of who's very similar ilk. They spent a lot of time looking at anything to do with establishment or se sexual abuse or exposure of establishment. Um, and they do everything they kind of discredit people like myself if they think that it's got some kind of clout or if people are starting to believe it. So there was, without a shadow of a doubt, an agenda there. They've also targeted a journalist called Mark Watts, who's very similar to me, working in his own spare time for free to try and get these stories out of child abuse. So 
Um, I do believe that Private Eye ha had an agenda 100% in the article that they did on me and Michael Tarragat. And Michael, uh, for everything that he's been through to, to then kind of in, it, it be inferred that he's a liar kind of is just the, you know, the icing on the cake really, isn't it? Who, on, who owns Private Eye? I know Ian Hislop's the editor. He's the editor. He's been the editor for a long time, hasn't he? I, if you, <clears> I knew, you know, the amount of time this Rosie Waterhouse spent on that article, there was no way this was just a, a piece of interesting journalism. This was a hit piece. She's, this was a hit she's piece. She's serving a bigger agenda then. Yes. It's not a financial thing. There's, she's been given the green light from someone upstairs to, you know, go all out against this. But there is, <clears throat> there's information that I found out about her. So I did a, an investigative piece, which is on YouTube, which I think your audience will find fascinating. And I really would encourage them to go and watch it because it's all about Rosie Waterhouse and her links with an individual called Barbara Hewson and how Rosie Waterhouse used her journalistic credibility <laughs> to try and um, get someone sacked. And she did apologize for that. So she's been exposed. And this is the beauty now of social media. You know, I connected with someone on Twitter who gave me this information um, and that information, I, I think, is why Private Eye have now left us alone because we've exposed Rosie Waterhouse. Um, you know, I could have got a def defamation lawyer involved, but instead I just produced this piece exposing this journalist and, and really kind of flagging up some of the things that she's been guilty of in the past. Because I've just written about Gary Webb and he exposed the Iran-Contra thing with the CIA bringing the cocaine into America. And... He was riding the tide of the success. He was on all the TV talk shows. And then all of a sudden, all the big mainstream publications just started to attack him, attack his credibility, attack the credibility of his newspaper. And they succeeded in completely destroying his career. But that was before, well, his story was online, but it wasn't when there was this much available when the internet had this much power to people like us available. And sadly, he ended up um, dead from two gunshots to the head, which was ruled a suicide, which ties in with, you know, Epstein's death being ruled a suicide. Why do you think there is a conspiracy between the dinosaur media and the establishment to reverse what you're doing? I think some there are some journalists out there that uh, have very sinister intentions, and I think there's some very good journalists. I think it's usually right at the top that we have a problem. The, the people right at the top of these organisations, the top of the BBC, the top of the Sunday Times. You know, I've fed stories to some journalists, and I think they're frustrated that they're not uh, reflecting these truths and getting these stories out there. Um, but what they've got to be aware of now is, is, is they're starting to insult our intelligence. You know, people are starting to think for themselves and go elsewhere for their stories, especially the younger generations. You know, my mum and dad might watch the BBC and love the BBC. You know, they're 73. But my children don't ever watch the BBC. I don't think they even know who they are. You know, so they have this reputation that they take for granted, but it's changing. Don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. It really I, is I, I do talks in the schools and they're asking me about Epstein. And they're so hip to what's going on in the world outside of mainstream news because they look at mainstream news as the prehistoric media. They're all on YouTube. They're all watching stuff on their phones. And, you know, I go to my parents' house and they're sat there watching BBC 
and they're watching ITV and it's the only time <laughs> I ever get a glimpse into that world. Go to buy the Daily Mail. My mum and dad always go buy the Daily Mail. It's just something to do, isn't it? It's, it's just the, a tradition. It's the only time I get a glimpse into that world. So I'm sat on the sofa on and I this? see these talking heads <laughs> with these plastic faces. And the words are just, it's like this going into my head. I'm like, I cannot stomach this, what, what this person's saying. It's so false and fake. It's almost like a puppet compared to the real life people on the street level that are out at the forefront of independent journalism. Can you imagine what it was like for me? I could have, you know, I was presenting, wearing a jacket with the makeup and my hair. I was reading an autocue. I'd get calls from members of the public. This was not journalism, you know? And I look at the, like you, I watch the news now and I see these women and they present, you know, a bit like me. And I'm thinking, this is not news. What, what are you doing, women? What, you know, journalists, women and men, what are you doing with these jackets and this makeup on? Sitting there, reading an autocue, and they're literally just getting these press releases from communications departments. They are the mouthpiece for the government and it's pure propaganda straight through. They get, they don't take the time to research. This is the big, big thing with news. You know, you might get a press release that says, so-and-so has happened, you know, particular events. But, you know, you have to take time. You have to speak to the people on the ground to fully get, get the full picture. Um, and like you, when I watch the news now and I see my mum and dad, um, I don't pay the TV licence, so I don't get BBC. But on Amazon, if you go, if you press, um, do you do the voice thing? Is it Alexa, Siri? Yeah. The news. That's all I do. You go, the news, and they give you like a 40-second roundup. And I watch it. And it just makes me go like this. <laughs> and it's always come some story about um, Boris Johnson or, you know, the kind of and the kind of agenda and the stories. They're just not what people are thinking about. They're not what people are talking about. They're not what people care about. There is a different world on social media that's real and alive and it reflects society. About a quarter of the content on the news that I saw at my parents' house was the Russians have done this, the Russians have done that. And, and they was... believe it, don't they? Do your parents believe it? Because mine do. Well, they did. And they've given up even trying to challenge they've been, themselves. They've been reading my books and they are now coming around to being sceptical about 9-11 and all the, the wars that have been happening in the Middle East and the Epstein situation. They're, they're getting quite hip to it now, yeah. Interesting point, and this is something that really pick, people picked up on my interview with James English, was how long it takes. So what I would say to you is when I had that moment with 9-11, it wasn't an overnight thing. It was a very gradual process. Is that being the case with your parents? Yeah, they still subscribe to certain things, but other things now they're fully convinced they aren't true. So they're not all the way there yet, but they're on the journey. We're all on the journey. And it's a habit, isn't it? If you've been watching the BBC for, for 70 years and, you know, they remember it for, from right from the beginning, you know, it's such an established part of one's life, you know, and I said this in the James English interview, it's like a member of the family because, you know, the, the television is static. It's in your, in your living room and you watch it every day and to then start challenging it and think that not they're actually lying to you, you know, that's a really difficult thing to, to accept. And I think we underestimate the power of the media and, and the information that we're getting all the time and how it affects our, you know, our personality, how it affects our communication and our terminology. Um, and it's changed me since I've stopped watching kind of normal television news. I feel I'm a different person. I don't know if you, you do when you just watch YouTube stuff. I wish there was a little bit more organisation on YouTube, but that's, I guess, why people like yourself mm. have a growing 
following because people now see you as somebody to trust. Mm-hmm. You're an influencer. So what you say they feel is um, they've attached to and attached trust to you. Whereas I kind of, when I'm on YouTube, I go all over the place. I look at lots of different things and I think I'll carry on doing that. I mean, I was watching an interview that the BBC did with Hillary Clinton today. You know, I'm trying to always keep an open mind and, and look at lots of different sources. Yeah, um, I mentioned earlier my book about the Clintons is coming out for Christmas. For anyone watching this, it is Clinton, Bush and CIA conspiracies from the boys on the tracks to Jeffrey Epstein, available worldwide on Amazon right now. And if you click down into the description box below this video, you can find that. A lot of it's based on the testimonies of the Arkansas State Police who were bodyguarding Clinton when he was the coked up governor protecting the CIA drug drops and that's around the time he got all these cases of sexual assault that he later settled with various women. Um, Getting back to what you just said about the BBC and stuff and and our parents. So my dad, when I grew up, he's a hardcore Labour voter. And mine. Yes, and supported the miners' strikes, couldn't, detested Margaret Thatcher. So every Sunday night, I think it was, we'd be up watching Spitting Image. Oh, I love Spitting Image. Yeah, 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 just like laughing at Heseltine with the helicopter on his head and things like this. And um, what happened was he was committed to that for life. So Tony Blur then, you know, he voted for Tony Blur. But then when Blur sold out and clicked up with Bush and then, you know, the UK and the US, UK was enmeshed in these wars for oil and profits for the you know the corporations in the middle east that was the point where he started to question things but he was still committed so when those wars first started happening i was like look you know saddam doesn't have weapons of mass destruction they always have a pretext this is how they start wars but my mom and dad were defending blur but now they're totally convinced that it's all a manipulation well, this is the thing, when you sow that one little seed of doubt and it starts to kind of have an impact on everything, doesn't it, and how you view everything. But yeah, I went to see the uh, the film The Official Secrets Act with Kira Knightley and that was all about, you know, what happened and there was a whistleblower at GCHQ that, you know, revealed the information that it just shows that the whole war was a sham. And Tony Blair, I mean, I still think about him and, you know, that film, what they say about Tony Blair is, is basically he's a war criminal. I mean, and that's a film that's... Uh, and everyone's going to see a big blockbuster film. We look back now on, you know, what's happening over the last 20 years and the media has not been doing their job and we've had to take control, you know. But I say we, we're all journalists now and you have. Um, you've, you have a lot of interest in the Clintons and Epstein, I've, I've noticed. Why is that in particular? You are not so much uh, what's been going on in this country with sort of Heath and Westminster paedophile ring. Is that... Okay, I lived in Arizona for about 16 to 17 years. Oh, well, there we go. As a young person after uni, I went out there, made a couple of million in the stock market, but I had no common sense. So the money went to my head. I started to throw rave parties for up to 10,000 people at a time. And I've got people smuggling tens of thousands of hits of ecstasy from Holland. So I take full responsibility for what happened. SWAT team smashed my door down. I ended up in a jail that's got the highest rate of death in America, run by a famous sheriff called Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who's not big on human rights. So there was dead rats in the food, cockroaches crawling all of us at night, guards murdering 
mentally ill prisoners. People say, Sean, guards don't murder mentally ill prisoners. You're making that up. I've got videos of them on my YouTube channel murdering mentally ill prisoners. And those mentally ill prisoners who were were murdered on camera, family members of the victims of the guards sued the jail and were awarded compensation. Let me ask you this, Anna. What do you think the boss of the jail, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, did to the guards that were found responsible in federal court for murdering those prisoners? I have no idea. Gave him promotions and pay rises afterwards. Yeah, so prior to the SWAT team, I was a narcissistic, hedonistic party person. All I cared about was getting high on the weekends, getting my friends high. I had about over 100 people working for me at these wild um, after parties. And I wasn't thinking about the harm I was causing society and the harm I was causing my family. My mum ends up having a nervous breakdown over my... Um, my arrest and you know when I even when I stay at their houses now it's almost like I can see the hurt and pain on their faces that have caused them so first year in the jail I was wild still I was resenting getting caught and if I'd got released I would have gone right back to it second year in the jail I'm facing a maximum 200 year sentence I've got 20 plus charges every time I spoke on the phone carries five to ten go to trial and lose they could stack it up to 200 And they made it clear I would get that because they gave it to a guy before me who refused to sign a plea bargain for 15 years. He got 200 years. So in the second year, I'm facing 200 years and I'm in max security and I'm covered in bleeding and itching skin infections and bed sores. I've got like a pink eye infection, yellow pus coming out my my eyeball. My my eyes are down here, kind of. Um, My girlfriend was my lifeline. She was visiting me three times a week. They charged her with a prescription pill found on the day of a SWAT team raid without a written prescription next to it, which is classics felony to stop her from visiting me. Um, you know, I've lost about two stone. I can't eat the food. It's almost 50 degrees in the summer in, in this place. Oh, and God, this is awful. You, you, you're covered in these skin, in- <laughs> skin infections. It looked like I spilled battery acid on my legs, these skin infections and bed sores. And then... Neo-Nazi gang called the Aryan Brotherhood decides who lives or dies. I had to get used to the sounds of heads getting bashed against toilets and, and people's bodies getting thrown around nearly every single day. Saw people's teeth flying out. Saw one guy get carried on a stretcher. There wasn't just, he, he was a suspected chomo, child molester, him cracking his head in. And there wasn't just blood coming out of his head. There was yellow fluid, like brain stuff coming out of his head. So when they said 200 years, I'm thinking I'm, I'm never going to get out of here. So I planned to kill myself after a guard did a security walk. I was going to just slash my wrists and bleed out. But before I was going to kill myself, I wanted to say goodbye to my family. What I mean by that was I was allowed seven photos. So I get these photos out of my mom, dad, girlfriend, sister. I'm looking at them. I just start to get really sad thinking my mom's going to get a call saying your son's just killed himself in a foreign jail. And to be honest, I actually started crying in the jail at that point and I couldn't bear the thought of putting my mum through that and that's what stopped me from doing it but but being pushed to the brink of suicidal insanity was what I actually needed to crush that old persona out of me because shortly after that period a guy limps into my cell with a steel rod in his leg screws are loose he's in agony he's got hepatitis C he's got syphilis and he's got stomach cancer whenever he goes on the toilet he's in complete and utter agony and because of his stomach cancer he's going to die in there in a couple of years and I was thinking, I was feeling so sorry for myself. I was going to kill myself. Listen to, listen to what this guy's talking yeah. about. Before I got arrested, I thought prisoners were pedophiles, murderers, rapists. And I'm not making excuses for what I did. I was an ecstasy trafficker. But when I got in there, 
Most prisoners are low-level drug users. It's the criminalization of addiction. It's people who've been abused as children. Yeah. And it, it, all these predatory corporations making money off the back of it. So that opened my heart to what was going on in the world. So I said to a guard, how do you guys get away with all this? Dead rats in the food, cockroaches on us. The world has got no idea what's going on. They don't care about prisoners. So that was the day I became an activist. The minute, the second he finished that sentence, I went back to my cell. You know, in the maximum security jail, you were allowed what's called a golf pencil, which is like a, ben a pencil you see in a betting shop here. Sharpened on the door, I started to write everything down, what I was experiencing. My aunt would come and visit me in maximum security. She smuggled what I wrote out of the jail. And that got put on the internet as a blog, John's Jail Journal. And it went on to attract international media attention to the conditions. And that jail, the, the maximum security Madison Street Jail in Phoenix, Arizona, was closed down a couple of years later. But that sheriff was still running the jail. So I've been actively campaigning for prisoners' rights ever you, since. You saw a horrendous situation. You took action and you brought about change. And that was in you, wasn't it? That is in you still now. It lit a fire in me. Well, you, we can all do it, can't we? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so... Going back to your question then, you asked me how I got Why to Epstein. Why you're interested in Epstein, yeah. Yeah, so I started not just writing about the conditions, I started writing about the prisoners and putting their stories online. They started to get pen pals and got books sent into them from kind strangers all over the world, which restored my faith in humanity. <laughs> we had some real Shawshank Redemption moments where we were filling the whole library up with books from these people that, that were sending us. So just before I got released, all the people I was writing about said to me, Sean... You're going to stay in touch. You're going to keep the blog going. Because most prisoners, sadly, even if they've come in like for a weed possession or something, they develop a heroin um, habit in prison. So most 90% of the, of the prisoners in some of the places I were housed were injecting heroin and crystal meth. Two-thirds had deadly diseases such as hepatitis C from sharing dirty needles. So most prisoners, when they're getting released, from what I saw, they'll say, look, I'm going to stay off the drugs. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to stay in touch, send you some money to spend, send you some books to read. And you never hear from them again until six months later when they're rearrested for drugs and they're back in the jail. So all my friends, the, the community of people that built around the blog, come to me and said, look, you're going to keep this going. And I promised them that I would. So that then was all written content. Now in the last, I've had my YouTube channel for over 10 years. My dad started it while I was in prison. I hijacked his channel. If you go back to the very first video on my YouTube channel, it's my dad on, ten, I think he's in Tenerife, playing the guitar in a <laughs> queen band. <laughs> Pretending he's like Derek May, or his name is May. I'll try and find that. Um, <laughs> so I started to put out content about prison. And as an activist, I wanted to deconstruct all about prisons and the prison industrial complex. And then that led me to the war on drugs. So the next thing I started to deconstruct was the war on drugs. I've written a whole series of books now, a war on drugs, drugs series of books. The new one is the fourth one. In the last couple of years, people started to ask me to put stuff on YouTube. And I realized I've got all this content written down that I could just move over to YouTube because it's strong content. And that's what I've done. And I started what's called a prison questions playlist where people can send me questions and then I'll answer them. So... When Epstein was arrested, a question that was coming in a lot was, what do you think is going to happen to Epstein in prison? Because a lot of people have been asking about what's happened to Takashi 69 in prison because he had a conspiracy case. 
And I wrote a lot about that because I had experience of that kind of a case. So I put a video up saying, will Clinton have Epstein killed in prison to cover up Lolita scandal? This was just after he'd been arrested. And then he died. And it all the Epstein thing on my channel just went completely crazy. And even now, every day, I'm putting an Epstein video up. And every, every you know, they're getting like anywhere from 10 to 100,000 views the first day. Yeah, so it this just shows how people all over the world right now, and, and a credit to them, are spreading the word about child well, we sex don't care he's dead, though, do we? We don't care he's dead. Well, most people are glad we that care. he's dead. We care that we've, we're not getting the real truth and that he had, looks like he'd blackmailed very important politicians all over the world. And it's all about blackmail and it's all about the information he had on them. Would you agree? Yeah, and what do you base that on? I mean, I only in that um, I think he was... I don't think he could have got to the position that he got to without having some kind of footage of these various different individuals in compromising positions. And it's just, a, I think it's what goes on. I think it's a big part of politics is blackmail. It's about maybe getting a man, getting a six, uh, a 14 year old girl in a room that looks like she's 16, 17 filming it. And then you've got something on someone, haven't you? You've got to get some kind of blackmail material on people. And then you can, uh, basically tell them what to do but I just get the I get the feeling that um from the evidence that's come forward that uh, it was all about young girls and it was all about powerful people it was all about parties and I don't think he he was important enough or interesting enough to have associated with all these people um I think that that's that's what it was all about that's the, that's the feeling I get and I kind of compare it to the stories that I know of what goes on in politics in this country and and the stories that I've heard, and a lot of it I can't publish. I'm in a situation now where I feel like I'm a newspaper editor. I'm getting these stories and I'm sitting on them because, you know, you never know when something else might come to light. You know, so what's been happening really in the last couple of days is I had some information about a particular politician. More information has come to light now, which is making it stronger. And you just have to weigh these things up. But, uh, yeah, what, what, what I think about Epstein, which is very interesting from my perspective, is, for example, you know, I if I do read any newspapers, for example, the Daily Mail, uh, Epstein died. They started to call it an alleged suicide for a couple of days. And they dropped the word allege. And they just say suicide. And I'm just thinking to myself, because, you know, I was a professional journalist. I'm thinking, you know, how many, how many things went wrong? You know, the CCTV footage, the, the, the video cameras outside the cell, the fact that he wasn't checked on, um, you know, the, the information that he potentially had on these powerful people. And these journalists from mainstream media news organizations, all dinosaur media, are coming forward and just saying it's suicide. They just, it, it, at least say alleged suicide, at least keep up the questions, you know, what, what, that's why people are going to, to your channel because they're not hearing, the, they're not having the, their questions answered or even discussed. Um, in in these mainstream media organisations, so, but yeah, work, is it is it a lot of guesswork when it comes to Epstein? I don't know. Um, but are you you obviously you understand that whole world? I know Q's a big thing. A lot of people talk to me about Q and QAnon, and and then they were talking about Epstein and how QAnon had 
And I'm, I kind of keep out of that world because I don't know. And I don't like talking about things that I don't know. You've so, raised a lot yeah. of different things about Epstein. Did you see the hot mic, the ABC journalist, Amy? It's a big nothing, that story. And should I tell you why? Because all they had was an interview with uh, one of Epstein's supposed victims. That's all she's claiming that she was saying on that hot mic. Um, and a, a news anchor interviewed the, the producer that leaked that video because she lost her job, didn't she? Um, but I don't, I don't, didn't see, didn't see that as particularly strong evidence. No, there was the story, no they, they just said, "Oh well, uh, we didn't have enough to run the story. All we had was an interview with with one of Epstein's victims." So, I think your gut about the blackmail operation and the filming of elites is correct because I've extensively gone all over the police reports when they did the first raid on the Florida property. They found clocks that had hidden cameras in them. Now, I've interviewed an ex-Florida policeman from that era who is presently in Russia and is facing multiple life sentences if he comes back to America. He was a whistleblower, and he has got files given to him by a lead investigator on the Epstein case. His name was Joe Recurry. He died mysteriously just over 50 years of age. But because he knew John Mark Duggan, the guy in Russia, was a whistleblower, he said, look, I don't trust my bosses with this case. I'm going to give you copies of all the files as well. So recently, John Mark Duggan was headline news, not because he would wanted to be headline news, but because it was leaked that he had these files. And a journalist friend of mine, an author friend of mine, Ron Chepsuk, who writes about the Colombian cocaine cartels, We've both been researching and writing about that stuff for years. He was in Russia. So he went to John Mark Duggan and watched some of the videos to verify that this guy was not making this up. And he said it was so sickening. They had to turn it off after a couple of minutes. Uh, underage girls, elites, and they recognized some of the faces, but not prepared to say who, who they were at this point. So absolutely information was getting filmed. And the victims themselves, especially Virginia Roberts, is saying that Epstein was trying to get the goods, you know, on Prince Andrew and other people so he could have leverage over them. Do you think Prince Andrew didn't didn't really like Epstein? They they weren't good friends. I don't know. They were just um, falling out, and that's why he flew all that way. No, I think that he's just trying to cover his bases now with these ridiculous lame ass. I think back then as well, they didn't realise how we all had would have this power to communicate as well, and how we, you know, these secrets. It can't these stories can't be hidden in the dark like they used to be, you know. Either that footage that well, what was interesting is the footage of um Prince Andrew at the door of Epstein's house two years after he was convicted. That was filmed in two thousand and ten, but it only came out this year. So who's sitting on that for nine years? And that whole and how house, else how much else have they got? According to dozens of victims' testimonies that I've read, that whole house was full of pictures of underage girls on the walls. And the policeman said, anyone who went in that in these houses of Epstein, they knew it was it was all about underage girls because of the pictures and the girls, the comings and goings. Yeah, Andrew's trying to say he had no clue that any of this was going on, and so was everybody else. It's a perfect blackmail age as well, isn't it? Because you could be look 16, 17. He could have said to them that, you know, she's 17, don't worry, mate. And she's actually 14. Because it's easy to for that age for some girls to look a lot older than they actually are. Um, but yes, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm interested in the situation in this country, which I guess is quite similar to Epstein, but, you know, the fascination by certain politicians and 
rich men who like young boys, you know. And after certainly after meeting Michael Tarragat and to speaking to other individuals, I, 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 I don't understand. I don't understand it, but it's clearly going on and it clearly went on. People with a lot of money and uh, and the boys that are targeted are the ones without, you know, the vulnerable ones that are in care. You know, and uh, when is it going to stop? Uh, I just, I just hope that um, we raise awareness around child sexual abuse, and uh, and these victims feel that they can come forward and 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 let people know. And what's happened since Michael's book has come out is I've we've heard from so many people who've said, oh, you know, my dad or my friend's dad or um, my brother or my uncle, they're now come forward and told their family about their um, being victims of sexual abuse and the. People are finding the courage to come forward and tell their stories in the same way that Michael has, which is which is very encouraging. It's very important that people talk about child sexual abuse. Why did you become a journalist, Anna? I became a journalist because I wanted variety and I wanted to meet lots of different people and I wanted to make a difference. But I've changed, really. I mean, that was when I was 21, 22. I worked for Rothschild's Bank, actually, in, in the Channel Islands, which so, I absolutely hated, in gearing. Let's go back a bit, then. Oh, God, I hated it. Did you do a degree to, and then ended did up in Roth, Rothschild's? I did a degree in Lampeter in West Wales in theology and anthropology. Theology and anthropology. Yep. Wow. What were your A-levels? Uh, music, geography, I hated A-levels. <laughs> I got really involved in the church. Um, yeah. Very, very involved in the church. Very, very, uh, became a, very passionate about Christianity and about sharing the message of um, of Jesus. And uh, I wanted to become a missionary. And uh, then I did anthropology and theology at university. And I realized that, especially anthropologists, um, hated missionaries because they go into these cultures and they destroy them and they bring in disease and and ruin their culture. Um, and they were trying to force a particular religious system on people they didn't want to know. But, but the story of love and selflessness within the Christian message is something I still very passionately believe in. So I'm a very, you know, I'm, I'm a person that's not driven by money. And I said to Michael the other day when he said he could die in, in peace, I said, that's worth a million pounds to me. You know, I, I'm not driven by money. So I did theology and anthropology. Then um, there weren't a lot of jobs around at the time. My dad had lost his job and ended up in teaching in the Channel Islands. So I was able to work in the Channel Islands as long as I lived with my parents. And there were lots of jobs in the finance industry. So I was offered a job at Bearings Bank or Rothschilds. And uh, I lived with my mum and dad in my early 20s, did that job for a couple of years and hated it. And I what thought, was your I actual needed... day-to-day work at the bank? It was making rich people very ri- richer. So you would have, I think Sean Connery was one of their clients. They would be all in funny names, you know, their trusts and different funny names. They'd have 10 million pounds. They'd borrow 30 million in Japanese yen um, against a security of, of a low risk investment. And then the gearing would be a little bit of commission they'd make between the the growth of their investment and the paying back the loan. So yeah, for me, it just wasn't where I wanted to be. It wasn't what I cared about. And, uh, and I decided I really need to find a job that I'm going to, uh, there's going to be variety. I can meet different people. And I went into newspapers to start with. I'm a bit dyslexic, so I ended up in television because it was it was easier for me than the written word. And uh, started off at ITV in the Channel Islands. Um, what year was that? Early 2000s. And interestingly, it was I was at ITV in Birmingham uh, when the Hope de la Grande story broke, you know, the Jersey Children's Home. 
Do you remember that when they were... I was in America. Were you? Can you expand on that a bit? Let the people know what it, what that is. Yeah, of course. So back in 2007, 2008, uh, a chap called Lenny Harper, who was the deputy chief of police in the Channel Islands, led an investigation into... Um, well, basically, they found the remains of of what they believe to be children uh, at this children's home. Oh, I did see a news headline about that. At Haute de la Garenne. So they started to excavate the basement and they uncovered uh, a number of bone samples. And this was a children's home for many, many, many years. There have been links um, to Jimmy Savile and Edward Heath. Jimmy Savile has actually been pictured at that home. Um, I think it was back in the 80s, but there's a a photograph, at least one that exists, of Jimmy Savile with the children at that home. Um, But yeah, the the survivors that were at Tote de la Grenne are still alive and telling their story in Jersey today. And I'm aware of two very large documentary teams and an author writing about Tote de la Grenne and the real story, because they were starting to excavate these bones. There were three forensic archaeologists on the scene. There was another chap who sent the bones, a guy called Professor Andrew Chamberlain. Um, he actually taught those three forensic anthropologists, but he raised some very important questions when I interviewed him last year. I'm the only, as far as I'm aware, I'm the only uh, journalist to have comprehensively interviewed this chap. And he talked about how these bones, he had to decide whether they were human bones or animal bones. And then they were sent off for carbon dating. So he told me back in 2007, the DNA testing techniques were, weren't what they are today. And he said that states of Jersey police could reinvestigate and examine these bones to say conclusively whether they were human or not. And they're refusing to do that. They also, I don't know if you remember the coconut shell. So they they did everything they could to disgrace Lenny Harper. He ended up losing his job. Or he ended up, sorry, he um, ended up retiring. The chief of police, Graham Power, they removed him. They also removed someone called Senator Stuart Sivray. It's quite a comp- comprehensive complex story but the gist of it is um is that not as all things are not as they seem back then so when i worked in the channel islands i worked you know i was aware of these different characters the first minister frank walker and lenny harper um and i believe that children were murdered and it was covered up i do believe that from the investigations that i've done and the people that i've spoken to i think uh the Jersey politicians did everything and they could they could in their power to kind of redirect the, the attention away from the island. I think they were very embarrassed and ashamed at what may have happened to children in their care. Um, and I've spoken to individuals such as Dr. Liz Davis, who's a senior academic and social worker in Islington, about uh, children being trafficked between London and Jersey and going missing. Um and, and yeah, and, and people like Edward Heath were spending time in Jersey and, and other politicians um, and victims of abuse as well. There's their stories and you listen to them. How did it feel for you to go from Rothschilds then to be reporting on stories of that nature? Well, I didn't report on it. I was at oh, ICU Birmingham. It. You yeah. just saw it. I'd left Jersey I by see. then. I there see. wasn't stories like that when I was in Jersey. What kind of stuff were you reporting on? So when I was at ITV um, in the BBC, we would, 80% of the content was press release based because you had a half an hour program to film. So you would, you maybe go to a story, do a live for the lunchtime, you'd get the shots to put a package together for the evening. Um, 
So you could be reacting to something that just happened, like a plane crash or a terrorist event. Um, you know, the Dr. David Kelly story was something that I, I looked at back in Oxford. What did you conclude about that? Well, we all we were all thought it was very suspicious what happened. Um, and I remember the paramedics that found him held a press conference and said that they were concerned about the the blood. Um, there wasn't enough blood in the area where he was supposed to have killed himself, which I thought was very interesting. But there were lots in... You know, I still keep in touch with some of the people I worked at with at ITV Central, and some of the cameramen have said, you know, they thought it was well dodgy. Thought what happened to Dr. David Kelly, um, but it's just one of those things. Back then, we kind of thought this isn't right. It's similar to Epstein, you know. This doesn't seem right. This this suicide story just doesn't seem right. But we weren't. Uh, we didn't really have a place to go to. Um, talk about it and research as we do have now. And this was before your 9-11 epiphany? Yeah, my 9-11 epiphany was kind of 2016. Okay, so that's recent. That's okay. recent, yeah. yeah. And I and it's not just things like 9-11. I mean, the, the chap I was seeing was talking to me about Jeremy Corbyn and I'd say, oh yeah, he's a joke, he's this, he's that, or Hillary Clinton. And I realised I was just repeating what I'd been watching and I wasn't actually thinking for myself. You know, I look back and I'm I'm glad I was able to challenge myself and stay open-minded and start asking questions and, th- and seeing things differently. You know, it takes to... a certain type of person to do it, don't you think? Yes. Did that start to upset your bosses? Well, I wasn't, I wasn't working in television at the time. I was independent. Okay. So in television... I, I, this is what I wanted to do when I first did the story. Yeah. Oh, go away, no, no, it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden you go... Uh, maybe (laughs) and I you know I was um, I was living a normal life you know looking after my kids saving up for a new car um, watching Netflix or watching the telly you know EastEnders Coronation Street I was living a different life I was living a normal life now I have this information now people are coming to me with these stories of injustice and abuse and exclusive stories which are uncovering horrific um, corruption amongst those that we're supposed to trust, my life has changed. I have changed. I feel very, very different. And um, I've got to make sure that I stay sane and strong and I do everything that I can to help a a, a world. and and it's, It's difficult to sometimes live in this dark media world and sometimes it's very dark and you can become cynical and you can start to lose faith and hope in in a fellow mankind do you ever feel that sometimes you just think well you're not helping yourself and you know when you see all this abuse and injustice and you you just feel alone and you just don't think anyone's nothing's actually happening nothing good is happening do you ever do you ever feel disheartened like that sometimes? It's like the Nietzschean quote, whereby if you look at stir into the abyss for too long, you're going to fall into it. So when you when I first learned about things that didn't add up, and I felt my worldview getting warped by this other information coming in outside of the dinosaur media information, the political information, I was just I think I went through a period of shock. I was simultaneously shocked, excited, and angry, and betrayed. And I felt as if my conditioned belief system 
was getting melted away from me. In the jail and the prison, I served just under six years and I managed to read just under a thousand, um, just over a thousand books in just under six years. So I read a lot of stuff, you know, people who've been in the Mossad, people who've been in the CIA, all of the references that David Icke put in his books and other people put in their books led me to read other books. And I'm just, this is confirming this. And then one thing I'm thinking, one minute I'm thinking, all right, now I believe this, which is a lot different from what I did believe. But then a month later, I've jumped again. Mm. And it's like, but you've, you're open-minded and you're absorbing all this information and you're taking everyone's voice on board. You're listening to every single voice, which is what we should all be doing. Yeah, absolutely. I thought I knew everything before I went into prison and reading was frivolous. And once I started to read, I was like, oh my God, you don't know anything at all and how much there is to learn. So it was fascinating to go on that journey and have my worldview just completely slapped out of me and transformed. But going back to the your career history again, because I'm just I'm just trying to understand more about where you have so come I, from. Yeah, so I, I, I was I, in a bank, then I went into journalism. Yeah. I went into TV for about ten years, and I did a lot of presenting and reporting, and uh, a lot of it was based on kind of press releases. So people, it's always organisations with money who send out these press releases or stories. Um, and and the other thing, there may be some kind of incident or police incident, and you would report it as fact based on what those institutions told you. You know, so if somebody called the newsroom and said, well, that's not really what happened, you'd be like, well, who are you? I don't trust you. You're not the police. You're not the government. And if two people called you, then you might start asking questions. But on the whole, people would call the newsroom with a story. And unless it was a, a professional that was validating it, or they actually had the evidence, visual evidence ready for you to go, you wouldn't touch those stories. But what I can do now is show people how to use their mobile phone devices to get their stories out themselves. And it's working. You know, the courses that we've run, thanks to Michael Tarragas' book, um, have has helped a number of individuals. And I've seen their journey over the last, say, six months, uh, how they've been able to connect with different organizations. They've been invited to speak at events. They've been able to get their story out. They don't feel silenced. They're fi- finally heard. Um, and it's and it's a very positive, that's, that feels like a very positive thing to me. And there's a different story. There are different stories getting out there from these whistleblowers and victims of abuse. The kind of people that called the television newsroom um, and we just said, oh, thank you ever so much. Uh, we'll bear it in mind. We'll take your details, put the phone down. You wouldn't touch it again. So that ties into something that my sister told me. She was a journalist for years. And she said there used to be all these like local reporters and local newspapers doing these stories. And all of a sudden... Everything just came from AP, the Press Association, or Associated Press. That was the script. And every newspaper just reported that story. Complete production line, giving a small amount of people total control over all the news we've got in this country. Now, going back to your trajectory, you said you were a journalist for 10 years. As you're getting towards the end of that 10 years how is your mind altering to bring you to the point where you're going to get out of that profession? What is lead, What is leading to that decision? Well, no, I was in television news for 11 years, but I wasn't a journalist. Oh, I'm sorry, for, in television. I was a, <laughs> in, in television, I was a in television, in television. I don't even yeah. see that time as me being a journalist, if I'm honest. <laughs> Journalism is what I'm doing now. Journalism is what I'm doing now. As a, as a presenter of possibly fake news for, for the prehistoric <laughs> media for 11 years... 
as you built up to the point where you were going to leave? Well, no, it was, I, I left, I had a kid in 2009 and then I went back to the BBC for a short period uh, as a producer for a consumer programme. Um, but it was more to do with kind of uh, the, the opportunity to go back came up, but I didn't want to. And, um, you know, the, the story of Jimmy Savile, you know, how they covered up for Jimmy Savile. You know, that alone, you know, a lot of people who work at the BBC should ask themselves, you know, ethically, morally, should I, should I be working for an organisation that has done that? And somebody came forward called Marion Jones, who worked at BBC Newsnight. You can find us on, online. He was interviewed in a number, a national newspaper in the Press Gazette, saying that everyone who tried to expose Jimmy Savile were considered to be traitors. And the BBC executives that actually kept quiet were the ones they kept on. Now, he's said that publicly. That's out there in the public domain. So that's fact as far as I'm concerned, if he's saying that. And in the last couple of years as well, I've been aware of a number of BBC Panorama programmes as well, where they have, um, well, you know, the, the footage of John Sweeney, for example, uh, which Tommy Robinson's team will, was able to capture, is pretty damning. John Sweeney has now left the BBC. Uh, of, there's another BBC Panorama called, program called Saving Serious Children from 2013, and uh, there's a lot of information out there about that one as well. And it looks like the BBC um, may have filmed a fabricated event, and that was an, an event where there were actors pretending to have been um, the victims of an incendiary bomb back in 2013. There's a chap called Victor Lewis Smith who now works for Private Eye magazine. He left the BBC over that is alleged to have um so i'm not the only person who who has worked for these organizations who've turned their back and said you know what are we doing what's going on so you got out of the mainstream because you had a kid i got out because i had a kid then you came back came back for a bit what made you get out again i to be honest with you it's more about how i can now do real journalism you know, I, I have a mobile phone that can produce pretty good quality video. I can interview people with a 15-pound microphone, and I can show other people how they can do that. You know, direct broadcasting is massive now in 2019. All of the politicians now are on Twitter broadcasting directly to the public. Boris Johnson was the first prime minister to launch new government policy via Facebook Live a few months ago. He got millions and millions of hits. You know, on a good night, Channel 4 News gets 450,000 views, okay? <laughs> so you you'll have the option now to bypass the mainstream media. You know, you don't have to um, wait for it to be in a local paper or, you know, just get out there with your message and put it forward in a professional way, add subtitles, especially if you're on Twitter or Facebook because 80% of content is watched with the sound off. So you've got to be... Uh, I've, I just felt that I could help people and get the real stories out there and empower different voices. You know, and I always say this, to shine a light into the darkness where those stories of injustice and abuse have hidden for so long. You know, this, the, 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 um, the corruption, the corruption with our institutions, in our corporations, people with money, whistleblowers who were silenced, given a 30 grand or whatever, a gagging order. We don't hear these stories. We need to start hearing these stories. And it's everywhere. And it's all sorts of industries, a so-called professional people who are witnessing, are witnessing you know, bullying, abuse and injustice. And they're keeping quiet. And it's time for things to change now. It's time for these stories to get out there. Yeah, as a stock market trader from an early age, I used to you know read all the company accounts and stuff. And that led to me then applying that analysis to 
the corporate interests involved in profiting from the wars, for example. So we got bombs predominantly from America and you know Europe. They estimate a BBC, the BBC estimated that these wars now hundreds of thousands of people dead in the Middle East because of these bombs, and more than half of them women and kids. Yet they're making all this money off the back of it, and they're perpetuating it with fake stories like what you just said about what the, is ca- it? the chemical. What attack. is it about? Is it about money? You know, if you get so much money, money stops doing something for you anymore. I mean, you've been very, very rich. I'm not motivated by money, but what is the agenda? What's really going on? Well, is this I, a battle I, between good and evil? I, you- was, I was rich in my 20s and I just self-destructed because I couldn't. I was on so many drugs and just spending it all on ridiculous things. But I think the seriously wealthy, to get to that level, there's a certain degree of psychopathy. And to get to the top of politics, to get to the top of certain companies... You've got to just, you know, profit at all cost, and that's human cost. Oil companies who go in and the indigenous people are just, the land is stolen from them so they can just do these things, or they're killed or run off the land. Um, the, 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 the military companies, the amount of money they make, I mean, that's the biggest expense in the, in the U.S. budget, isn't it? The increase in America's military budget just the increase was more than Russia's entire military budget for the year. So that there, right, tells you the taxpayers' money is like a feeding trough. So whoever is in charge of the political party in power gets to allocate that money to corporations, and they're all competing to get it. So they bribe the politicians with political contributions. And then they get that that chunk of change. But I just, if you were right, if you and me then were were head of corporations or head of the government, and you you know we were dripping with money, well, what would you do? I mean, how much is enough? Yeah, and what do you do when you've got so much? You just it just bores you. Well, you end up like Epstein, don't you? Where nothing matters anymore, and you just think you can corrupt the system and and do whatever you want, or like Clinton. But do you think there is a spiritual battle going on here? Do you believe in God? Do you believe that there's a battle of good and evil? I think there's a thing called elite deviance, and that's in the sociology books. And what it says is that if you are so wealthy and so politically connected and you know you can get away with anything, you'll do it. If you're of that mind, if you're a deviant person, you'll just do it and you'll know you can get away with it. And that's what I've seen from researching the Clintons and that's what I've seen from researching Epstein. I mean, the way he corrupted that first case, he had, when he was sentenced, he was living in the stockade on his own, not in the prison system. The visitation room, he had it to himself, so he had a TV installed. The guards were running him around to his appointments and being his bodyguards. He made them wear plain clothes. He donated over $100,000 to the sheriff's department for this to happen. And they were screening his appointments. He basically only slept at the stockade and he was out allegedly committing more crimes during that time as well. So if you've got that much money and you're that politically connected, elite deviance kicks in. If you can do it, get away with it, you'll do it. Yeah, if they are that way inclined. But I'm sure there must be some good, wealthy people out there who are doing good causes. Why do people go into politics as well? You know, what's the real motivation? Why do people go into journalism? And this is something I write in my book, Making the News 2018 in television. 
it was very much the ego. And we've got to constantly put ourselves in check. Now we've got platforms and you've certainly got a very powerful platform. You know, it can get to your head sometimes and you look at comments and views and how it's growing. And, but, you know, at the end of the day, we have to remember what our focus is, what our agenda is, what our direction is. Um, and, and the content that we want to put out and the purpose as well. And you know, what is the purpose of what I'm doing? Um, do I want, I want to make the world a better, happier, safer place for my children. That's what I want. And that's a good motivation indeed. The link to your book will be in the description box below this video. There's not, it's not without risk what we're doing. What are your thoughts on Julian Assange? I just... <clears throat> imagine, well, you could imagine, obviously, much better than I can, what, what it must be like for Julian Assange to be living in solitary confinement in Balmarsh Prison 23 hours a day, no access to the internet, no, in, 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 unable to prepare his defence. And I believe, you know, I've watched John Pilger's gone to visit him and he's been talking about Julian Assange's mental health is deteriorating. Is what, what happens? I mean, you you could probably describe better the situation of, of what it would be like to be in a cell for 23 hours a day with no human contact. Yeah, when I um, I went for a bail reduction hearing my first year in the jail, my bail was $750,000 cash only. The prosecutor was trying to make her name off my case. She sabotaged that hearing and my bail was doubled to 1.5 million. So I was moved over to maximum security. Then the police who were investigating my case who'd brought it to the level it was at. Um, none of the co-defendants were cooperating with the police or the prosecutor, so they were very surprised because my competitor, Sammy the Bull, his case, 57 co-defendants all cooperated with the police. So the police then tried to get me killed in prison. There was this uh, scheme that they were on. It's so corrupt out there. So I ended up locked down in uh, max security uh, where you just get out one hour a day for a shower or to make a phone call and then you just sat in there and i saw the effect it had on people because prisoners when they get locked down if there's a staff shortage they're gregarious they want to be around each other and they're like um beating the doors and stuff and i can imagine over months and years it would send you insane to be locked down like that and studies have shown in america with the people in supermax that have been in supermax for years they do lose it mentally so the pressure on Assange and what they're doing to him, you know, I've been watching various people speak about him recently and they're all saying that he's the only journalist or one of the few who everything he's ever reported has been proven to be 100% right. Yeah, he's the one in prison? It's just unbelievable, isn't it, when we think about what we've done to him. You know, he's a hero. Yeah, what absolutely. What he's exposed. And... Uh, I just, I don't know what to do other than to kind of raise awareness and, and, and maybe force our politicians to, to, to intervene and, and get him out of there. And people can write to him. And I'll put the link in the description box below this video if you want to write to Julian. We mentioned about Private Eye and the journalist there criticising Mike. Criticising me rather than Criticising you. Yeah. Has anyone else arisen to try and trip you up or criticise you? Have you? What other obstacles have you faced on this new journey? The way I handled that particular article that was written by Rosie Waterhouse in Private Eye, I think has sent a very clear signal to other journalists that uh, they're going to have a very similar fight on their hands. So I think they've probably backed away. I think Private Eye magazine were the main ones, were the main concern for me. They have a history of going after journalists like myself who are trying to expose 
you know, establishment cover-up of child abuse in particular. They have a real interest in that. Um, so yes, it's gone quiet on that front and I've had no other attack, no. Where do you see this heading for you, what you're doing? I uh, my, my platform's growing. So on Twitter, I've got 25,000 followers now and I can get 140,000 views. Please go over and follow Anna on Twitter. Link in the description box. But I'm a reluctant and, you know, I feel like I've, especially since that interview with James English, which, you know, if you do go, get a chance to watch, guys, it's, I've, I was getting sort of 20 messages a day after that. Hundreds and hundreds in the end from people who were saying to me, God, you're so strong, you're so brave, you're so, so wise, you know, we need you, you're a hero. And it and I don't feel comfortable with that. And I feel like I've become an influencer really over the last three, four weeks. And it's making me feel uncomfortable if I'm honest. Um I kind of had that that ego being stroked in the past and I needed it. You know, I was very badly bullied at school and I went into television, I think, to make myself feel good about myself, for the worth. You know, and you, you get fan mail and, you know, everyone makes a fuss of you because you've gone television. And I've, that was my old life. Um, and I'm, I don't know. I don't know if I'm up to, up to it. And then Michael says the same thing, you know, with, with power comes responsibility. So, you know, if I do put a video out or share something now on Twitter, it reaches a lot of people. So I've got to choose the right messages and I've got to produce the right content that is going to make the world a happy, a safer place um, for children. And I just want a political party to come forward that puts children first. And I also think that we need to really shake up our, our mainstream media, old media organisations. I think there's people at the top that are corrupt. There's some really good journalists out there, but there's some people at the top that are stopping these stories from getting out and we need to get rid of them. So um, this is an, an interesting journey. And I know you've, you've, you've got a position of power and responsibility now as well, haven't you? And it's fantastic to hear you going into schools and talking to people about prison um, and your experiences. Well, my ego was as big as the Grand Canyon when I was on the drugs and throwing these parties. And... I had to be humbled by going through the incarceration experience. I thought I was a wild and crazy party person. Going to jail where, you know, they're injecting heroin all day long, a lot of them, and they're 10 times wilder and crazier than me. If I'd have been mouthing off with these big, tough, tattooed guys, they, they would have crushed me. So, like I said, I had my epiphany. I became an activist. And studying philosophy and psychology, especially like the, the Greeks, like the Stoics, it, it just made me learn that my former motto as a teenager that I'd inherited from the movie Wall Street, Greed is Good, money doesn't make you happy. Look, it's put me here. It's, it's, it's created all of this. But happiness is in your thoughts and in your heart. So when I leave a school and they've asked all these questions, all the teachers have said, yeah, they've just stayed throughout the break. They've never, ever done that. I'm just driving home with this smile on my face. But I did recently read another book called Ego is the Enemy. And it, there's, a, there's a constant battle there that we all have with our ego. And you just touched on that. You just said that I'm getting all this attention now from the James English podcast. And it's given me an uncomfortable feeling because I've previously, you know, considered about 
the ego and that world. So on the other side of that, couldn't you also say that as your following is ramping up right now, and congratulations to you getting hundreds of thousands of views on that podcast, because me and James, we put podcasts out nearly every week. And it's, it's rare they get that many views that quickly. So that's, you know, something has resonated with your story and the public right there. Um, but the fact that that's happening, if you are a vessel then for people's voices, then that enables you to build that, to more, transfer those voices to more people and help those people in a bigger way. Do you see that side of it? Yeah, I guess just sometimes I feel vulnerable and scared and and I'm just overwhelmed by, you know, the response really recently that it wasn't kind of something I was trying to, to achieve. You know, this this platform that I've built has kind of happened by accident. And I've met people in the, and I'm, in the last two years, this journey of meeting people like Robert Stewart, who's been trying to expose BBC Panorama and um, John Wedger, a former Scotland Yard detective, you know, the conversation I had with Dr. Liz Davis, Lenny Harper, I've done an interview with him from Hope de Ligaran in Jersey. And I'm getting, all I'm trying to do is get these stories out there because I failed and my colleagues have failed to do that, you know, from my, my past and the BBC and ITV. So that's all that's happened. But but now I'm being interviewed. So this is what's different. You see, I've always interviewed people and um, James interviewed me and that was the first time anyone's interviewed me. And um, all I do is speak from the heart. And I guess people have connected with that. And the big thing that people really picked up on is one that I've called social media, new media. That's something that I've brought about, which they really love, because it's actually given us the power that's due. It's far more powerful than just a conversation in a social environment, isn't it? We're doing exclusive and really important um, news and journalism. And the other thing is this transition into truth, this, this, this awakening where you're you're saying this doesn't seem right, this doesn't feel right, you know. I'm being told the stories in the papers and watching the news and it just doesn't feel right, you know. And I'm hearing other stories on YouTube and from people and uh, and that awakening and that transition into truth is something that people are really connected to as well that I've kind of identified, you know, that I was in shock and didn't want to believe it all to start with, you know, the 9-11 thing. Because if you then start to think 9-11 was... An inside job. What else have they done? You know, what else are they capable of? And you get to a stage where uh, something like Epstein, you're told him he killed himself. And you think, well, no, not even. Don't even believe it for a second. But then this is the important thing, and, and we're looking forward to the future. And this is what I'd like to ask you: is what happens when we don't believe in anything? That's nihilism, isn't it? And I think it was in Dostoevsky's works where he wrote that when you don't believe anything, you can do anything. And the guy went out and murdered somebody. So you have to learn to draw the line. Uh, I would be anarchy, wouldn't there? There'd be absolute anarchy and chaos. But that's where I'm worried that we are heading because uh, where there is no truth. For example, say, for example, there was a disease in this global disease, some kind of, I don't know, bird flu. And we were told by the government that we had to be vaccinated. I could see there's a very big rising up on alternative media or YouTube saying, well, don't do it. They're actually microchipping you or you're going to kill you. And then people don't take the vaccine. And then that spreads and the human race ceases to exist. 
You know, if the government can't control us through the media, which I'm, I'm very concerned that's happening, well, there would be no rule. There would be no direction. Does that make sense? Is that a possibility, do you think? I think when you put a small amount of people in charge of multi-billions of tax revenue, that amount of money is going to corrupt them. And all those corporations I mentioned earlier, um, all the contracts that get handed out, like we're seeing the privatization now of the prisons and the police. That's something I research and write about. I'm a member of law enforcement against prohibition. And these are police, judges, prosecutors who are against the war on drugs. They said we had joined the police to arrest pedophiles, murderers, rapists. But we were assigned to infiltrate student groups, get them smoking weed and throw them in prison at the end of the month because they're the easiest people to arrest for our arrest quotas. So everything has come about has become about results, performance, arrests, revenue generation. That's what the police and the prison systems become about. If a kid from a care home goes and tells the police that they've been molested, you know, that just creates a bunch of work for the police that they can't make any money off. They're not handing out speeding tickets. They're not. Oh, God, you're cynical. <laughs> well, that's what my research you've has met led Mar- me. You've met Maggie Oliver. That's what my research has led me to believe. God, yeah. it, but that's just so dark, isn't it? It's so cynical. And it's, it's like, well, it's just miserable. Yeah, well, here's the thing. I went, through, <laughs> I went through the shock and the misery and told myself, you've got to appreciate life and the miracle of existence. And that's my philosophy. I wake up with a smile on my face. There's no dead rats in my food anymore. There's no cockroaches in my bed. Things are pretty good in this country compared to all the horrible things that go on in the world. And I'm generally an optimistic, positive person. I enjoy what I'm doing. I'm on this mission. The spark was lit in the jail. And um, I feel really good that I'm not doing a nine to five and I've not sold my soul out to the Rothschilds. And we can give people hope, can't we? And we can, we can spread a positive message. I know so many people on antidepressants, though. So. You know, there, there is something wrong, isn't there? I think it's a vast number of people are on antidepressants, so something's not right. I mean, my dad was a socialist. I'm interested to see the path and journey you went on because you said your dad was a socialist, but my dad hated Margaret Thatcher. She said she destroyed communities. She just made everyone selfish, and I'm the complete opposite of selfish. I do everything I can to be selfless. and to, to That's the, the message that my dad taught me, and that's what socialism is. Um, but what's interesting for me is I've got loads of people from... Uh, people at anti-media uh, tend to be on the whole kind of right, on the right side of politics rather than on the left, which I don't know if you've found that yourself. But So there's a spectrum, isn't there? And I, I see, because of my research into the Bush family and the Clinton family, the Clintons were working with, it was George H.W. Bush was the president when they were bringing the cocaine in. And Clinton, Democrat, was providing the state police security. At their last election, George H.W. Bush, Republican, voted for Hillary. So it's the same thing in my mind. Uh, one crime family is allied with another crime family. The Trump, you know, he's president. Anyone who gets to the president, I view as a mafia don. To get to that level, you've got to be like a mafia don running your own crime family. So I'm not... Do you think that they are, though? Do you think the presidents, you know, Clinton or Obama, were actually running the show? Because I don't. I've just watched a series on Netflix about the Vietnam War and the politicians, they come in and the presidents come in and they're on this platform that they're going to end the war and they're saying all these things and then they do certain things 
And then all of a sudden it completely changes and they're just bombing the shit out of Vietnam and Cambodia and doing the complete opposite of what they said. And each one who came in did that over all these years. And I'm starting to think then, these guys aren't in charge of this. No. There's a much more powerful, you know, entity. There's a powerful entity behind These are just them. like figureheads. I think the same with Theresa May and Boris Johnson. I don't think they are running the show at all. I think there's people in the background that are, that are behind it all, definitely. Like your former um, bosses, the Rothschilds. Like Rothschilds, Sir Evelyn de Rothschild. <laughs> He's very, very shiny shoes. Uh, I remember that. He came round to, to the offices in Rothschilds and Guernsey and went, hello. <laughs> like, just like the um, Prince Charles or someone like that. But uh, I don't know too much about the Rothschilds, but I'm glad I don't work for them anymore. Because we, um, we just interviewed Sonia Poulton and she asked us to put a clip in, didn't she, James, of she doorstepped the Rothschild, didn't she? Did she? Did, did you remember which Rothschild that was? Jacob. Jacob? She doorstepped him. It's got like almost a million views on YouTube and she's confronting him with things. Um, and we've added that um, to the podcast we've done with her, which will be published before this one. So if anyone's watching this... And you want to see Sonia's podcast. She did a brilliant documentary called Pedophiles in Parliament. Um, that link will be in the description box below this video as well. So is It's there... funny, I was watching that today, Pedophiles in Parliament. What did you Sonia think of Bilton, it? Because she's kind of doing a similar thing to me. It's, it's, it's great. Get it out there. Um, I think we need to, to do what we can. I mean, there's so many rumours, that's the thing. We need to start getting the... Um, organizations that are doing great journalism that we can all trust, you know, and believe in and, and give us hope and direction for the future. But I think there's a lot of positive signs now when it comes to, you know, I've, I have worked with people who were silenced, who had no voice and now they have, you know, there's a woman called Jan Cruikshank and her story is now going to be on the national media in Scotland. It will, by the time this is broadcast, thanks to her getting a story out on Twitter, you know, she lost her job. Um, she alleged she was raped by this particular individual who kept his job. And they failed, the organisation failed to report it to the police, even though they said they did. And she's exposed that. And you, you have a situation where you are a whistleblower, a victim of injustice. You can get your story out now. You can. So I like to, to, to kind of finish all of my interviews with a, a, an uplifting, positive notes that um, things are changing. The world is changing. And I think we're going through a very painful, difficult time, but a very necessary, difficult time as we transition into a new era of truth. To all the people watching this then, i like to wrap up with a call to action. How can people help you? What can they do for your cause? Because Maggie say? Oliver was on. Just if and- you are seeing something in your life that is wrong, film it and get it out. You know, that might be anything. You know, there are so many different areas of, of injustice um, and truth. So if you are seeing something in your life that you aren't happy with, get your mobiles out. I've got an online course. So every pe- the, the more money I make passively, the more time I can spend on investigative journalism. So if they want to buy my online course, it's 15 quid and it'll show them how to, to use their mobiles to get professional content out of there. I've also got a book, Making the News. So the more money I can make from those small things, the online course and the book means the more time I've got then to investigate and to do other documentaries, which I don't make any money for. Obviously, the work I did with Mike, um, I didn't get paid for. So I can do more of that, basically. So that's how I would really um, I'd be very grateful to, to your watchers and listeners to, to help with that. And there are so many platforms out there the, um, this, these days. 
from the conversation, I'm getting the impression you're quite active on Twitter. What, what are the platforms you're most active on? Well, I would really love to crack Instagram because everyone under 35 doesn't watch the news and they spend hours and hours a day on Instagram. Um, but I, I'm not on Instagram and I'd love to understand if anyone's got any help or advice when it comes to kind of news, because it doesn't seem to be, it seems to be very visual on Instagram, you know, um, design and food and art and fitness. There doesn't seem to be a lot of kind of investigative journalism on there. Have you experienced that on Instagram at all? I am completely clueless about Instagram. Because I, I, oh, if, I, can't, do it, if I Instagram. can't do it on my desktop, I don't like it. I don't like fiddling around on my phone. And uh, I've had a few people have uh, attempted to help me with Instagram over the years, but it didn't really amount to much. We've got some stuff going on right now, but my Instagram has not um, blown up like some of the other um, platforms have blown up. So yeah, I need I need help on Instagram. As well. Yeah, well, I I'm, I'm I've been very successful on Twitter. Like I said, I can I can get 120,000 views on Twitter, but only 25% of the population are on Twitter. Most of the population, 70%, are on Facebook, 70% are on YouTube. So hopefully, if people want to subscribe to my YouTube channel, I'll be putting more content on there. The interviews that I've talked about, Professor Andrew Chamberlain, who um, was a forensic anthropologist involved in the Hope de la Garenne story in Jersey with the children's children's remains that interview will go on my youtube channel my interview with lenny harper um, my interview with other people trying to expose this this corruption and and child abuse because i do have a lot of contacts now in that world so you know the interview the podcast i did with james english all of a sudden i got another two thousand subscribers just off the back of that um but like i said to you i feel a bit uneasy being interviewed well, I appreciate you sitting there feeling uneasy being interviewed today. And to the people watching this, can you please put in the comments below this video what you felt about today's interview? Also, the subscribers recently went over 300,000 on YouTube. Huge thank you to all the people who've subscribed to the channel. If you've not subscribed yet, in the bottom right-hand corner of this video, there is a little logo down there you can subscribe on. Huge shout out to all the people who've donated on Patreon, PayPal, just give in to keep the production quality of the true crime podcast at this level. We've got the camera crew in here today, James and Joe, big shout out to them. Their credits are in the description box below the video as well. They've just driven four hours from Essex to come to Cardiff to film here in Anna's house. So they need the credit they deserve as well. And we sometimes finish these interviews, Anna, with the Arizona Prison Handshake. Are you familiar with that? You could ask me to sing then. <laughs> so we shake hands and then we grab like that and then we bump fists. Ah, yeah. lovely. Cheers. All right. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you very much, people. I hope you've enjoyed it. Cheers. Thank you. Right now with Talk Talk, you can speed up and spend less on broadband. Out of contract on Superfast Fibre? W Speed and save £134 on average by switching to Talk Talk Full Fibre 150. Just £32 a month for 24 months. Get ultra fast full fibre, average speeds of 152 megabits per second, plus the world class Amazon Aero router. Switch to Full Fibre 150 and save £134 on average. Search Talk Talk Full Fibre for deals that make sense sense. Talk Talk. CPI plus 3.7% annual increase from April 2023. Average saving on full fibre 150 versus competitors publicly available out of contract fibre 65 equivalent on 18th July. Ends 9th November, 9.95pmp, subject to local availability. 
Right now with Talk Talk, you can speed up and spend less on broadband. Out of contract on Superfast Fibre? W Speed and save £134 on average by switching to Talk Talk Full Fibre 150. Just £32 a month for 24 months. Gets ultra fast full fibre, average speeds of 152 megabits per second, plus the world class Amazon Aero router. Switch to Full Fibre 150 and save £134 on average. Search Talk Talk Full Fibre for deals that make sense sense. Talk Talk. CPI plus 3.7% annual increase from April 2023. Average saving on Full Fibre 150 versus competitors publicly available out of contract Fibre 65 equivalent on 18th July. Ends 9th November, 9.95 PMP subject to local availability.